you know, after five years, I didn't necessarily want to be an ensemble singer the rest of my life. And I hadn't really found my voice and I, you know, who I was. And so the lure of the studio was so great because I was singing with all these huge stars and working, you know, 15, 20 hours a week, making buckets of money. And I was anonymous and nobody knew who I was. And so my life was my own and it was quite a ride. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Brie Noble. Brie is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Brie's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Brie is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, this is Brie Noble. Thanks for tuning in to Female Entrepreneur Musician. This is our inaugural episode. We have had a few pre-launch episodes, and if you haven't listened to those, they are really helpful in telling you who the show is for and what our format is, what we're going to be talking about each week. We will be releasing a new episode every Friday, and this is our first episode with Erin Dickens. I did this interview a little while ago, and I've hardly been able to wait to get it out because it's such a rich interview. There's so much experience that she has to share with us. I just can't wait for you to hear it. So I am going to start with a little bio about Erin. As a founding member of the Manhattan Transfer, Erin Dickens has enjoyed a remarkable career on stage and in the recording studio. After spending five years singing ensemble music with the group, Aaron emerged as a top studio singer in New York. Dickens has performed, toured, and recorded with many notable artists, including Leonard Cohen, Bette Midler, James Taylor, The Talking Heads, James Brown, Barry Manilow, Jocko Pastorius, and Ashford and Simpson, just to name but a few. As passionate about cooking as she is about music, Erin Dickens released a new cookbook with accompanying CD, Sizzle and Swing, Jazzin' Up Food. She also released a line of herbal seasonings that shares the moniker, Sizzle and Swing. She was awarded the prestigious Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Award in 2012, and also in 2012 was awarded the Best Jazz Vocalist Award by Coffee Talk Radio in Los Angeles. So here is my fun and enlightening interview with Erin Dickens. So I'm really excited to have Erin with us. You guys are going to be blown away by her career. And you just heard her bio, and there's so much amazing information in there. But Erin, I want to ask you, what is not in your bio on a more personal level that we need to know about you? <laughs> that I can say on the air. Oh, hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> um, well, I guess... I guess maybe my belief in all things spiritual, that, um, you know, that we're taken care of and that the right thing is going to happen and um, that there's more out there than just, you know, our daily, you know, scrapping along. And and maybe I would say also my complete obsession with Cocker Spaniels. <laughs> <laughs> totally unmusic related. Unmusic related. I love my dogs. I love my dogs. They sleep in the bed. My poor husband, oh. oh, he puts up with so much. <laughs> My kids would love that. They've been begging for a dog, but I'm, I'm not a big dog person. Not that I don't like them. I just kind of like I have two kids and I don't want to take care of another thing. Yeah. So. Well, you know, you could look at it this way. They sort of will help you take care of the kids. <laughs> 
I, that's what I'm hoping. I yeah. mean, I'm really thinking about it because my daughter's turning 12 in April and she's begging for that to be her birthday present. So we will see. Yeah, it's it, it's a great joy-filled thing, unconditional love and devotion and, you know, some messes and a couple chewed shoes right. and sofas. <laughs> but is, it, is it hard to leave your dogs when you go on tour? It's really hard. Um, I really miss them. I feel really lonely. Um, but my husband adores them and they being as adaptable as they are immediately unglue from me and glue onto him. And mm, so he, yeah, he digs the attention and, and they're sweeties, you know, so I, I miss him terribly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, you have such an amazing career span really. And even in the beginning, just so much cool stuff that happened, but I want to know how you got started with all this. You know, I got started in a way that people can't even dream of. I, I went to New York on a project in college, a month-long um, study course, and I found myself in the office of a publisher who was friends with my mother and some of her friends in New York. My mother, who, by the way, did everything she could to keep me out of New York. She sh- of course she did. <laughs> of course she did. She shipped me to college in Virginia thinking, you know, the farther away, the better. Maybe she'll ride horses. I mean, it was really funny. Um, so I march into this publisher's office, and there are, are Tim Hauser and Marty Nelson, two of the Manhattan Transfer originals, and they were just singing some harmonies, and I sang some harmonies, and it was like a light bulb went off, and we were signed to Capitol Records, I would say, within the year, um, and took off. And, you know, when does wow. that happen? Uh, it, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anymore, for sure. No, it, it doesn't. So what, what year was this? This was, oh, 19... <laughs> I know, I know. 1969 was when oh, we officially gosh. started, yeah. And wow. I stayed with them till like, 73, 74. And um, then got so busy as a studio singer in New York, which was really attractive to me. So I, I opted for that. Um, rather than staying with the band, um, which, you know, was a double-edged sword. I, I didn't really, you know, after five years, I didn't necessarily want to be an ensemble singer the rest of my life, and I hadn't really found my voice and, I, you know, who I was. And so the lure of the studio was so great because I was singing with all these huge stars and working, you know, 15, 20 hours a week making buckets of money, and I was anonymous, and nobody knew who I was. And so my life was my own, and it was quite a ride. You know, it didn't help me find my voice, (laughs) you know, because you had to be sort of whoever they wanted you to be. Can you sound? Yeah, you found everybody else's version of your voice, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A good friend of mine once said to me, who he was also a singer in the studio world, and he said, Aaron, you got to stop being everybody's everything all the time if you want to find your voice. (laughs) Makes total sense. Yeah, pretty now, true. Now, I have to ask you, I just watched, like, a, maybe a couple months ago, that movie, Ten Feet from Stardom. Mm. How many people in that movie did you work with? Um, I worked with a couple of them, Mary being the main one, but that was a slightly different group. They were more the touring group. Um, and I worked with the studio group. And in my group were Patty Austin, um, uh, Valerie Simpson, you probably know of Ashford and Simpson. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of names that you would know. Diva Gray, you might know. Um, and Peebo Bryson was in that group. And mm. there were a lot of really great, 
great singers. Melissa Manchester was in the group, Bette Midler. So a lot of a lot of those are people that were started out as session singers and then kind of in the early 80s, they all hit their stride because that was when I started listening to music was the early 80s. Right. And that, I mean, and Barry Manilow was fan. I mean, he hired us all to go sing jingles. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's just sort of funny and you didn't think anything of it. And in the studio, you're playing with players like Will Lee and Steve Gadd, and, you know, mm. I mean, and Cornell Dupree and Marvin Stamm and uh, John Faddis, just extraordinary musicians. And we thought nothing of it. I look back and I think, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was just your life. I mean, you know, it's not, you, you couldn't stand outside of yourself, really. Right. It, it just all seems kind of normal. And, you know, looking back, uh, it was like being a surfer and catching the perfect wave because it... It didn't last that long um, because the money was so extraordinary that the advertisers stopped stopped hiring on the scale that they did. And so it changed dramatically in maybe a space of 10 years. Mm. But it was a heck of a ride, I got to tell you. <laughs> and were you once, I mean, I don't know what like kind of charting success Manhattan Transfer had in the early days, but I know they had a big hit in the early 80s. Were you kind of like, oh man, you know, I missed that or you were pretty much over it by then? Um, I was, let's see, early 80s, I was still doing studio work, um, and I was happy for them, but I didn't really think I wanted to be them. Uh, mm. You know, they were so good, and, you know, the longer you stay together and the better you, the better you get, the longer you do your craft. And so we were great in the 70s, and they got greater because they did it longer. Um, and I just... No, it wa it wasn't appealing to me. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good that you didn't feel like, oh, yeah. if only I had, you know. <laughs> I know. And what's really funny about it is, you know, it came full circle last year. Um, I, I think I don't think I even told you this, but I recorded a CD called Java Jive, and I decided, you know, I had decided to re-record the song Java Jive, which was one of the first successes that Mantran had. By the way, I sang that in high school with my, like, show choir. <laughs> it's, uh, that and Trickle Trickle, and I can't remember what else. You know, just some of those. Uh, it was so fun. That's so cool. It's such great music. It's really, it's great music. No, I don't care who you are. But so I thought I'd re-record it, and my producer, Jesse Frederick, because just because he is who he is, decided to put it to a hip-hop beat, which is really cool. Huh. And I got a wild hair, and I called Tim Hauser, who was – the only other, you know, original founder that's in the current group. And I said, you feel like doing a cameo? And he's like, yeah. And then he ran into Marty Nelson at a benefit. And he goes, Marty, Marty, I'm doing this thing with Aaron. You got to do it. <laughs> Before I knew it, I had all the original members. And they're on that CD that you, that you have, um, singing background. And so it came full circle. And that was so incredible to me because that was the first thing that we recorded together um, the first hit that they had, the first thing that the new group recorded together, and very sadly, the last thing that Tim Hauser recorded because we lost him about six months later. Mm. So it's, you know, it's pretty cool. And we actually, um, in November, we, all the alumni came up to um, the Blue Note in Manhattan and we sang with the current group. And it was the first time we were all on stage together in, in tribute of Timmy. And that was pretty special. 
So my next question for you, because we have a lot of struggling musicians that are listening to this show and they're trying to figure out how kind of to, to make their way and, and if they've done the right things or the wrong things. And it helps them to hear kind of stories of people that have made it that had failures along the way and how they dealt with that. And I'd love to hear, you know, some, a, a particular moment that you felt like, oh my gosh, am I going to recover from this kind of story? Um, I think that it wasn't a moment so much as a movement um, when the jingle industry and the background vocal industry started to die in New York for a myriad of reasons. Advertisers weren't supporting it and everybody had a digital studio, so they didn't need the big guns anymore. Um, and I thought to myself, I've been so extraordinarily successful, the business is taking a nosedive, I hate the business, I still haven't found my authenticity and my voice, I'm out of here. And I did, I quit, I moved to Hawaii. Oh, <laughs> you were definitely out of here. I was out of here, I was like, I am done, I am just done. And which was a brilliant move, and, you know, I lost a lot of years. I stayed there for 10 years. Um, but I found myself. And Hawaii is, they call it, one of the chakras of the planet. And everybody you meet there is either on a spiritual journey or drunk on the beach or in recovery. Or <laughs> just, there are no normal people in Hawaii. But it really gave me an opportunity to get away from the pressures of the business. And, you know, am I young enough? Am I thin enough? Am I smart enough? Am I rich enough? It's like... I finally realized that none of that really matters. My resume is not who I am. I am and have value just because I'm here. And that was a huge realization. I think I was very insecure, um, you know, early on in New York because of the pressures. You know, I mean, it, um, people will talk about you and your looks and your voice while you're in the room as if you're not even there. And it can be debilitating. So I took that time and I studied a course in Miriam and got really healthy and said, I'm done with music. But of course, you know, music being my muse, you know, tap, tap, tap on the shoulder. Um, I'm not done with you. You're coming back. Um, and I, of course, ran into brilliant musicians with whom I'm still great friends. Bruce Hamada stands out as one of my favorite bass players in the world. Um, and so I did quit. But I think that what is most important and what you can learn about that or what you can do if you don't want to quit is to go inside and stop listening to the voices around you and listen to your own voice and discover who it is you are and what it is you have to contribute to the, you know, to the good of the order, as they say. Um, and when you do that, you will find your self-worth and it won't matter what's going on around you anymore. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you fail or if you succeed because you have succeeded because you're working from the inside out. You know what I mean? That is so important. I mean, so many people don't realize that till it's really too late to recover from it, you know, yeah. till you don't, you don't have anything left of you because you've been trying to be somebody else that everybody wants you to be all this time. Right. So it's good that you took that time off. And I know what you mean about the muse thing. Like every time I had a, a baby, I thought I'm done. <laughs> I'm not doing any, I'm not doing any more music. I'm focused on this. And a, like literally about six weeks in, I'm like, I got to do something with music. I just can't focus on a baby my entire, you know, <laughs> life. I, it's, it's fulfilling, but not enough when right. you've been doing the music. And the lullabies ain't cutting it, right? <laughs> no, they were not. 
even if they were in German, they weren't cutting it. So, but you know, it's I think that's the thing. It's like a lover that you never get over. It's like a codependent relationship. You just can't get away from it. You know? Yeah. I mean, definitely. And you know, and oh, happy day! Thank goodness, because I I think I'd be lost if I didn't have this connection to this passion. You know? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So what event or influence was critical in bringing you to where you are today? Well, gosh, I don't think I could say it was an event. Um, I think um, the influence maybe would have been the time that I spent in Hawaii and, and doing some spiritual work and um, sort of getting out of my own head. I think that... This is a little deep for, I don't know, but um, I think that you can't make a bad decision. And when you realize that, everything gets easier because what you may decide to do that may look bad, like me leaving New York and quitting, everybody thought, oh, God, how could she do that? She's ruined her career. It, it was a great decision because I grew in ways that I needed to grow. It took me to where I needed to be then to get to where I am today. And so I make my decisions now on my gut and on my heart and they take me to the next step and sometimes I go, oh, well, mm, that would have been lucrative. I wish I did it or that would have been fun taking that tour. But I, I don't think it, in the big picture, I don't think it matters because I think you're taken to the lesson you need to learn to go to the next step in your, you know, in your life, in your growth. I think that's true. And really the only bad decision you could make is to make no decision at all. Like if you feel like you're you're stuck or you're not doing what you're supposed to do, but you don't know what that is. You got to at least try something. Yeah, exactly. And to just be, you know, you could still be in New York right now being frustrated, trying to do backup work and not making enough money, but not knowing what else to do. You know, you, you at least took a leap of faith in some direction. You, I mean, it's, it's like being paralyzed with fear when you can't take a chance. Right. You know? And I think, uh, I think that I, it took me a long time to learn how to take chances. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was so afraid. I'm like, you know, don't bend over. Your tummy might not look good or you know, whatever you do, don't improvise because you might sing a wrong note. And mm. boy, that, I tell you, it's like freedom when you get over that, you know? So tell us about a mentor that you had along the way. I, I think for me, one of the most important things for me to get across to musicians is you really need a mentor. You need someone that has either been there before or has helped other people get there before. So you can really have a roadmap because otherwise you're just like a shot in the dark. I think you are. I think, you know, being in Manhattan transfer for openers, you know, trying to make it in a group situation is so much easier than trying to make it as an, as a soloist because you've got your cronies and you're in a group and you mentor one another on a certain level. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, even though, and we were, we were kind of, you know, breaking new ground as it was. And so that was really helpful. I mean, I think um, my dad certainly was a mentor because he was an amateur musician who taught me how to play. And he played only because he loved it. And he played every time he could. He played banjo and guitar and piano. And, and so that's what rooted me in the joy of music. I mean, you know, like at eight so right. now I have from eight to 18 before I'm hit with, you know, the business of music. So that's good. 
Yeah. That was really good. And you can really come to love it before you have yeah. to deal with all the crap that goes along right. with it, you know? Right. So, so at some point in your life, you go back and you remember that and you go, right. But I think once I was up and running and really go, stretching out, I would have to say Leonard Cohen. I, oh, I, I know. I actually, I read that story. That, I read all those cool stories about dealing, you know, being with famous musicians. And I read the one about, you know, you working with Leonard Cohen. And I was really impressed because oh. his songwriting is like crazy. Crazy good. And I mean, yeah. you know, getting that call was like, oh, mm. <laughs> seriously? Um, but watching him work, nothing phased him. Sort of like what we were talking about. He works from the inside out, not from the outside in. And watching his authenticity and the way he just danced to his own drummer and you know even today he's like 78 years old he does three and a half hour concerts 20 somethings <gasps> are screaming in the audience there oh my is gosh. no there's no age there's no time there's no barrier he just is who he is and that's what probably made me really go on this search for authenticity it was probably what contributed to going to Hawaii because I'm in the studio. Can you sound a little whiter? Can you sound a little bit more like Ann Murray? Can you sound a little, you know, I thought to myself, why am I doing this? What, what is this? This is not. So they didn't, they didn't want to pay Ann Murray. They wanted a cheaper version yeah. of Ann Murray. So they want you to sing like Ann Murray. Yeah. Uh, here's a, here's, that's annoying. Here's a story for you. I'm in the recording studio with Valerie Simpson. Ashford and Simpson, Valerie mm -hmm. Simpson. And the talk back comes, and she's singing the lead. It's for Lifesavers. Val, can you sound a little whiter? And she just looks at them. And then she looks at me. She says, Aaron's white. You could have Aaron sing it. Or I could sing it like Valerie Simpson. I mean, it. Good job, Valerie. It was the most insulting thing I'd ever heard. They hear they have like a certifiable genius, musical genius, Ugh. and they want her to sound a little whiter. So, I mean, you know, when you're dealing with that, <laughs> and then you go on stage with Leonard Cohen, you, you kind of say, okay, I get it. So what, what makes you unique as an artist? Because, you know, I see so many artists. I, I'm constantly, you know, listening to music by female artists all day long. And a lot of times I see them just trying to sound the same as everybody else and be the same. And their bios are just so like, oh, you need to stand out somehow. You know, what do you think makes you unique and how has that served you and have you capitalized on that? Well, I think capitalization is a story all its own. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think a couple things musically, if we want to stick to musically, I think that um, my choice of material um, I'm not the next girl in the black dress singing the American songbook. Um, as beautiful as those tunes are, I don't want to do that. Um, and I think that my delivery of lyrics, the, my ability to sort of speak the story and um, become immersed in it, I don't sing a song unless the lyrics really touch me. So musically, I would say that. Um, as an artist, as an entertainer, I would I relate tremendously to what you were saying about your performances where you tell your own story and you engage your audiences in your life and in your heart and your soul. And I think that that rings true for me because I think what we have to give is the, the sort of unbridled joy that we get from doing it. 
And I feel that that's just something that we channel. It's not something I create or you create or any musician creates. It's something that's given to us. And I think that the job at hand is to pass that on. Um, and I think that when you have a room full of people, be it 100 or 100,000 for a couple of hours, you can raise, you know, sort of elevate the vibration of the planet by freeing people from the doldrums that they're in, their mortgages, their relationships, their illnesses, all the things that are bothering them. They, they can forget that and just receive this joyful experience together as a group. And I think that that, that is where the juice is. And that, if you can tune into that juice, you've gotten the payoff. So, you know, that's, that's capital. It's not capital that's gonna go up to Merrill Lynch in New York but it's big capital spiritually and emotionally. Again, I say I don't think that I can do it. I think that, I mean, I pray before I go on stage. I don't pray, oh, dear God, make this go okay. I pray, oh, dear God, please help me get out of the way. Help me be a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Help me be the vehicle for the joy. Just use me up, man. I'm there. You know, and the, the hardest thing, I think, to do, but one gets better with experience, is like you're standing on stage. Oh, God. My top doesn't feel right. I hope it doesn't look stupid. Oh, God, that note was a little flat. Oh, man, the drummer's rushing a little. you got to get out of that. You have to forget that. Other oh, my gosh, that self-talk is so oh. distracting. I, I hate it. when I, I'll be, like, playing a song, and, I'll, and, that, and this stuff will be going through my head, and I'm like, how am I remembering what I'm going to play next when this stuff is going in my head? <laughs> Stop. I know. And you can't begin to get inside the music otherwise. You can't. You can't right. do it. And, and I don't know about you, but if I think about – what the lyric is to start the second verse, I, I can't, I lose it. I, I, I can't remember the lyric. Yes. It's bizarre. So I, I know not to do that. I just sing the song, stay in it. It'll come. <laughs> it does. It, it's in there. It's in, don't, don't get in its way. Right. right. I always joke, you know, every new song I learn, I'm, I've reached critical density. I, I'm afraid it's going to bounce an old one. <laughs> ah, that's funny. <laughs> So you've had so many amazing experiences along the way. Can you can you think of one in particular that is like so, was such a mind blowing experience that you, you you were kind of thinking to yourself, you know, pinch me? Is this really me? And is this really happening to me? Um, I can think of a few. Um, just because it was such an amazing time in New York, and every thing musical in the recording studios was happening in New York and I was there and so um, I was on a gig with Manhattan Transfer and we opened for James Taylor and spent uh, it was like a two-night gig um, we spent the entire day the Saturday of the gig at the home of Jim Croce making oh, I know loving love Jim Croce making, he was like my childhood oh, favorite love and I'm still great friends with his wife Ingrid who's a lovely woman mm. but we were making flutes out of reeds in a pond and it was all the Mantran and Croce and Ingrid and and James and you know then the next night we get on stage and we all sang together and you know I walked away from that gig going that 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 was James Taylor <laughs> I didn't think much of Jimmy because he was an old friend so I mean it, that was Jimmy you know but that's, right. That was a big one, and I think I did Saturday Night Live with Dr. John and Levon Helm. That was really, really, really fun. What What year was that? That was pretty early it's, in Saturday Night Live. It was, and it was the, huge. It might have been. It wasn't the first show. It was like the first year or second year, maybe seventy seven, like okay. maybe seventy eight. Wow. I can't remember. But he had a band. Dr. John put a band together with Levon Helm, of course, from the band, who's maybe the world's greatest drummer, and. 
um, and Paul Butterfield, the, the blues harpist. Oh, And wow. they called themselves the RCO All-Stars. And my friend Annie Sutton and I did uh, Saturday Night Live with them, where I met Linda Ronstadt, who was hosting. And she asked me if I would go on tour with her. And that was pretty, that was big. And um, wow. I, I felt a real sort of simpatico with her. But I turned her down because I didn't want to be out of town that long. That That I might regret a little bit because... Mm. I felt like she and I, we hit it off so heavily and she was so special. And I felt like, you know, if for no other reason, screw the career, it would be really great to have known her better. Right. But not really a regret. I mean, you know, so those are a couple. I mean, the call by Leonard Cohen was big. I worked, I went on the road with Greg Allman. That was huge. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I knew it was going to be hard to, to find and one because there's just so my many. My boyfriend from New York kept, kept flying down at different places on the tour because he was so worried about me out with these Southern, uh, Southern boys, you know? I don't blame him. <laughs> they have quite a reputation. Oh, yeah. It's all yeah. true. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. So we finally get to hear about what you're doing now, which I think is so cool. So tell us about your new project. Well, I, um, what we haven't talked about is that all these years that I've been doing music, I've also been really heavily into cuisine and, and gourmet cooking. And in fact, Mantran, we used to cook together before and after rehearsals, and we were all into it. And um, maybe that's where I first got the passion for cooking. So at some point, I, I thought, why wouldn't I combine my two passions? Um, I don't know any musicians who don't love food and don't cook. We all cook. I mean, after gigs, cats will come back to my house and we'll crack open a bottle of wine and make a crab omelet or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And so um, I started writing some of my recipes and then it occurred to me, well, what recipe would you put with what song? And so (laughs) only somebody completely... Thinking like a musician, uh, yes. Um, In my own world... (laughs) <laughs> so I wrote a cookbook that um, that is inspired by the tunes on my Java Jive CD, and each song has a recipe and a story. And um, for example, um, since we're on Leonard Cohen, my first gig with Leonard Cohen was at a festival called the Fête Humanité in Paris, and it was huge. And afterwards, he took the band to a really cool bistro. And treated us all to steak frites, which is essentially steak and French fries. Steak and fries, yeah, right. I mean, but nobody does it like the French. And so that was my first steak frites, which really was great, and my first concert with Leonard. And um, so I thought that was a good match. And I um, paired it with a song called Je Cherche un Homme, which is a French chanson um, that... I, I truly love, and um, so that was on the CD, and so you can listen to Je Cherche un Homme um, and cook yourself some steak free. <laughs> mm. So each song has a story, and I, you know, tell some tales out of school. You got to do it. Yes, got to do it. And uh, it was a great and joyful experience, and I'm finding that a lot of people, um, I, I've called to book me um, which may solve, you know, the sort of booking problem in the United States, which is not easy. Would you do a gourmet concert for me? Um, And we get together and uh, put together a menu, sometimes using recipes from my book or ones that I know or ones that they know, 
using my line of herbal seasonings, which I just created called Sizzle and Swing. And we talk about the food and we talk about wines and we create a great evening. And then I do a set afterwards of jazz. And it, it's a really nice evening because the audience. Oh, my gosh. I would love I that. know. That is awesome. And the audience gets so involved. And I can't, what I can't do is be in the kitchen and cook it. So I work with, you know, a, a chef or a cook from a local restaurant or we, we've done it at, as a house concert for like 50 people, which was just a the bomb. It was so. Much I was going to ask about that. That sounds like the coolest house concert. Yeah, ever. and and the audience become friends, and they're talking with you like friends. So while you're on stage, you know they're asking questions about the food or the songs or the. It's it is so fun. It brings it to another level. I love that. Yeah. Okay, if you ever come to California, I would love to do that. <laughs> that is awesome. I actually have been thinking about it because Ingrid Croce has a really fabulous. Um, restaurant and music place. Yes, uh, I, I've been there at, in uh, San Diego. Yeah. So, and she's invited me out, and I just haven't gotten my act together, you know, to put together a few things. But what would be the most fun would be house concerts, cooking. You know? Yes. Because then you can do it just with cool. a great pianist. It's not a big deal. It's not sound systems everywhere, and he's dragging around, you know, trios and quartets, and it becomes so intimate, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be yeah, awesome. Yeah, it would be really fun. <laughs> So I'm curious how your current audience, if they really got on board with this project, and if you found kind of a new audience with this project. Both. Both. That's great. I found, yeah, I found a foodie audience. And um, the stores who carry my line of seasonings all want the book. And when they buy the book, you know, they'll say, can you sign six of them for me? Because we want our customers to have a signed book, you know. And people go home and they listen to the music and they use the seasonings, which are delicious, and they're, they're designed to sort of help the home cook have an easier time. I mean, nobody wants to be zesting tangerines and, you know, you know <sighs> yeah. figuring out exactly what you have to put to make, you know, that flavor right. And so I have four different varieties that have herbs and spices in them and some sea salts, and, um, mm. and they just make life easy, you know. No, no, what are the four varieties called? Um, one is is called, um, it's Meyer lemon zest with uh, two different varieties of, of basil. Oh so my it's gosh. minty and lemony and orangey at the oh. same time, um, which is delicious. I should send you some. I'll send you some. Um, I have got to try I'm this. Making I'm actually, yeah, I love eating, but I'm not very good <laughs> at cooking. So I will send you a set of them. So, and then one is um, dill and tangerine zest which you, you've died and gone to heaven when you put it on salmon or eggs or salads. or. Ooh, I have some salmon in the fridge right go. now. I don't think I can get this there fast enough. <laughs> Not that quickly, I know. But um, And then I have one that's called chili lime and cilantro, which is great for Ooh. almost anything. I thought nobody would buy it, but that's my biggest seller. And the other one is a nice Tuscan blend, great for grilled meats and veggies. And there's a rub. and oh, So yeah. they're good. And it's been really fun. And getting to talk about food and sing in the same thing is like, you know, it doesn't get any better for, any, for me anyway. So with your new project, how have you, what kind of tools have you used to promote that? What has worked the best? You know, networking, social media, um, some kind of online tools. Um, have you used an agency to help promote it? Um, I think, you know, the sad thing to say is that I think that my best promotion comes when I'm in the room because 
I'm just a sucker for good food and, and music. And so, you know, I'm so excited about it that it becomes contagious. It, social media, I think, social media is great, but it doesn't monetize anything. But it does make you a lot of friends. And I've made friends all over the world, which is so fun. You know, I'm going back to um, Germany in the spring, and I have friends that I've met on social media who I'm going to see. And I, I love that. Uh, in fact, that happened to me in Australia. I, somebody came to backstage at this concert hall and said, so-and-so is here. And I said, uh-huh. And he said to tell you Facebook. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, there he was. Wow. You know, it was so cool. So I think social media is great. I think that people largely overlook traditional media, um, magazines and um, newspapers and radio and you know, shows like yours are more traditional. Um, and I think that they, they inform large numbers of people in the area that you're coming. So that, you know, I try and do that. I try and have somebody send a press release to three or four local papers and radio stations whenever I'm performing. Well, that's what I love about radio and podcasting because the audio medium, I mean, you really connect with the person on the other end. I mean, you know, our listeners right now, they really, I think when they're done with this interview, they really know you. I mean, they're going to feel like they, they talked with you in person for right. an Right, and that's what's interesting about you know, a podcast because you're not dealing with advertisers who are limiting your time. You know, uh, when I've gotten on traditional radio, I'll say something like, it's really important to me, you know, and that'll be the <laughs> Uh, I've said something really meaningful and just like, it's really important to me. <laughs> so that's, and podcasts are so brilliant because if you have some sort of a connection with the interviewer, as I do with you, we feel very comfortable together. Then this is something that you can play for years and send around to your friends and, you know, people enjoy it. You know, like you said. Right. And the people that listen to our podcast are very specific kind of right. people. You know, it's very niche. They are wanting to hear what you have to say. They're not just, it's not just this like scattershot thing where you're, you know, going on the radio and, and who knows, you know, there's a bunch of sports fans listening. They're not interested in hearing about food, you know? Yeah. So that's what I love about podcasting. But I was wondering with your, you know, food and recipes and it can be so visual if you, you know, take some fabulous pictures. Have you used things like Pinterest and Instagram to promote I it do. at all? I use Instagram a lot. Um, in fact, I drive a lot of my posting from Instagram through Facebook and uh, Twitter um, because I like Instagram. I, I'm a little disenchanted with Facebook just because it's, they've put so many sort of um, filters on the data that my friends aren't seeing what I'm saying and I'm not seeing what my friends are saying. Uh, I know. I have 10,000 fans for Women of Substance Radio, and I'll get some post that says, like, 25 people saw this. I Are know. you kidding me? 25 people <laughs> saw this. It drives me out of my mind. It's just wrong. <sighs> and Twitter um, Twitter is the better tool, but it, it takes, I think, 5,000 followers on Twitter. And um, so it's effective when it goes out, but, you know, your tweet has, like, a 10-minute reach. And so right. you've got to either automate, which I think can – can become obnoxious or you've got to be pretty diligent about tweeting once an hour or something if you want the majority of your people to see you. But once that starts to reach the tipping point, I think that Twitter is the more powerful tool. 
I agree. Twitter has been great for this podcast because I, and, and, and for the Women of Substance podcast also, because I send very specific tweets to particular artists yep. and then they will retweet it to their yep. fans, you know, so it's got that viral thing going on, which is, which is awesome. But I haven't really figured out how to use Instagram for audio content yet. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't have these fabulous pictures no. to share. You can show pictures of me standing in front of my computer <laughs> with headphones on. It's really not very and exciting. And here comes the same one again. They, yep. you can. And this is what I do every day. You can use video, but I think it's like, is it 15 seconds or 20 seconds? It's really, it's shorter than Vine. Sh it is like yeah. 20 seconds. So it's, that's really tough. But, um, yeah, you got to do pictures. But, you know, you could have your artists send pictures. That, that's a good well, idea. It would be really fun. And I don't know how to do it. Well, I do know how to do it, but I'm afraid I won't look as gorgeous as I am in my mind. Is have, <laughs> have your artists take a selfie when they're sitting at the computer talking to you. Oh, right? that's and right true. Before you, you could do it right before the podcast. You know, you could put that. That's an interesting yeah. idea. Here, wait. I'll, all right, I'll do hmm. one. Okay. Oh, this is just so horrifying. I'll send it to you, Brie, only cool. because I love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, so I have to ask, what is your most prized possession as a musician? Is it, you know, is it a, a certain microphone, a certain instrument? Um, I don't know, a recording tool. What, what's your most prized possession? My pianist. Oh, I totally love that my answer. My pianist. My pianist and my health, including my mental health. <laughs> mm. My pianist, because, uh, you know, he's everything. He's. Well, and if you have a pianist that you have complete simpatico with, as far as he follows everything you do, and you just have this, like, you know, chemistry, this rhythm together, it is magical, yeah, really. It totally is magical. It's, um, and, and I change pianists a lot because I travel and, you know, I can't bring right. my beloved Steph Skajari, who's down here in Maryland with me to Europe. Um, but I play with this incredible guy named Peter Van Santen, who's just insane. And Steph is insane. And, you know, I got a guy in Texas and I got a guy, you know, so each time you get up to do your same material, it comes to life in a new way. And that's really fun. So do you have a book that you can recommend, um, either of a creative musical nature, a business nature, or even like a, you know, a self-improvement nature that you think that people should read or would be helpful to our listeners? Um, I've got a couple of them. Um, in terms of, for singers, there's a great book written by the fabulous um, Nancy Murano, who is a great uh, voice teacher and also theory, music theory teacher. And she wrote a book called Musicianship for the Jazz Vocalist, which is really something. Um, and it, it can be for beginners. It can take you right through the very beginnings of, of reading and ear training and, you know, that sort of thing. But if you're more advanced, you can start in the middle of the book and um, get into much deeper theory. And she talks about voice training and about theory and about, you know, I went to her for a voice lesson. I wanted to tune up before I went to Europe a couple of years ago. And she said, you don't need singing lessons. You, you need to learn how to play the piano. <laughs> I thought, oh, oh, that's interesting. God. So I've been, you know, struggling along with that. But it does help me. It's helped my ear. It helps me as I'm putting together arrangements for my stuff. It's helped me a lot. So I'm grateful to her. And then... The other thing I'd really recommend is, and I've forgotten the author's name, but I'm a student of the Alexander Technique. 
which oh, okay. um, is now required study in many, many conservatories, certainly in, in Europe more than here, but um, it's, um, it's sort of a psychophysical uh, training. It's like yoga on steroids, um, and it's for balance and coordination, and it's extremely beneficial to musicians and actors and athletes, and you'll find so many study it, like Sting is a big Alexander guy, and so's Glenn Close, and so's Kevin Klein. Um, Charlie Chaplin was a master. Um, so anyway, this thing is called Alexander Technique and the Voice, or you could just look up anything on the Alexander Technique for musicians. It helps okay. relieve tension and use your teach you to use your body in such a way as that you're getting the most and best use of it. So I found since I started studying, my voice has opened up and I'm having to change keys of my song up instead of down, which most people do. I wow. know. That is amazing. Um, and, you know, a lot of my, some of my really high stuff that I used to do in my 20s is back. Um, so it's really, it's not easy. It's, you know, it's a lesson a week for a long time, but wowie kazowie. Yeah, it's and then spiritually, it. I'd say A Course in Miracles, which is a lovely course of spiritual mind treatment, just helping you undo the thinking of the world and reconnect with the spe with spiritual thinking. And it's kind and gentle and powerful. So there's three. That. <laughs> cool. That, that's, that's great. And of course, and your of course, book. We'll put that because, in Because, you know, cooking sure. is spiritual too. It is. It is. That's what my husband does to oh, relax. Bless him. So I can't believe it, but we have come to the end of our interview and I would love to know how people, and the best way that people can contact you on social media and website. Well, I'd say the best is to go to erindickens.com um, and there you will find links to all my social media as well as links to Sizzle and Swing, which is um, my food site where, where you can buy the book and the seasonings and um, get recipes and stuff like that. Um, so that's probably the easiest, but you find me on Facebook under Aaron Dickens or Sizzle and Swing. Easy. Same thing on Twitter. Um, but I'd say AaronDickens.com is the best way. And I, I've kept it on my site that if you email me at Aaron at AaronDickens.com, you will get me. Um, because I think that's, I think that's wow. important. And if I, <laughs> it's not going to go into some admin no, black it's hole not. somewhere. And, you know, when I'm really, really busy and I can't keep up with all of that, you know, my husband will read through stuff for me and make sure, you know, Aaron, you got to answer this. You got to talk to this person. You got to, you know, um, which is great because I just feel like as long as it's possible for me to do that, I will do that. Well, it has been so cool talking to you. I love hearing all the cool old stories and, and, you know, seeing how you've, kind of transformed yourself and, you know, made yourself into a completely different career today, which I think is really, you know, perfect for the times that we're in. It's, it's been such a long time coming, getting this interview together. And I'm so glad you were patient with me that we made it. I know. Work. I'm really glad. Well, I knew I wanted to talk to you. I think we talked a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, through Ariel Hyatt. Yeah, yeah who, Ariel whom I Hyatt. love and who has remained a great friend. Um, and so I, you stuck out with me as I remembered, it was like really special. And I said, I got to find Brie and tell her what I'm doing. Thank you. That's nice to know that I made some kind of an impression oh, anyway. Should. Well, thanks so much. And I will, um, get your interview up very soon and I'm sure our audience will love Thank it. Thank you so much, Brie. It was really a great joy to talk to you again. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans and grow your business. 
female entrepreneur musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com with editing by Bree Noble and music by Stella Ronson.